Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Ecclesiastes 117. Our Torah portion says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Exodus 23 verse 2. Another way to say that is, You shall not fall under the influence and social pressure of the majority to do evil. Ever since the end of World War II, the Western world has puzzled over a seeming contradiction in humanity's development. The post-Enlightenment era world believed itself to have left behind the nightmares of humanity's darker days, thanks to education, social development, and the evolution of the collective human consciousness. The blood-washed days of savagery, brutality, and inhumanity were thankfully over, like bad dreams from which a person is glad to awaken in the morning and remember no more. As a culture, a society, and as a human species, we had outgrown and left behind the Dark Ages with its superstitions, wars and crusades, religious intolerances, and so forth, and the world was maturing into a more sophisticated agnosticism based on empathy and humanitarian concern for equilibrium and the common good. In a word, humanism. We find an example of this new optimism for the human condition even in the writings of our early Messianic Jewish luminaries who were themselves sons and daughters of the Haslacha, the Jewish Enlightenment. For example, Rabbi Isaac Lichtenstein speaks enthusiastically of the dawn of a new era when the persecutions and pogroms of the past are over and Christians and Jews can set aside all differences. It's the idealism of the kingdom. But the reader today can only observe the irony in his words, realizing that he wrote a generation before the First World War. And the so-called... The so-called war to end all wars, which was quickly followed by the Second World War and the Holocaust, the intentional attempt at a complete genocide of the Jewish people. World War I, and especially World War II, shattered the illusion that the human species had evolved or was evolving to develop a higher conscience or more refined morality. Rather than making human beings more tolerant and empathetic and champions of a common good, as humanism espouses, the new idealism revealed the depths of human inhumanity, cruelty, and ruthless, dispassionate cruelty. Nor is it possible to dismiss those dark years as a mere anomaly in the line of human progress, because the European atrocities of the World War II era were not the end of the story. The story of human inhumanity continued and even grew darker wherever communism flourished, and communism was itself the daughter of a humanism, a social system developed from social theories for the common good, in defiance of God and religious superstitions, atheist at its core, based on the idealism born of the Enlightenment era. 
But all of that was taking place in the East, in Asian countries where thirst for cruelty seems to never know any satiation. So maybe the West could dismiss communism's moral problems of human rights violations, genocides, and depravity as Eastern problems. But we could not be so dismissive about what happened in Germany because the Jews would not let us forget, and they still will not let the world forget the six million that perished in Europe on the altar of humanism. This last week was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, an initiative intended to remind the world that the Holocaust happened. It's important. Today, white nationalism, anti-Semitism, and anti-Israel sentiments are being disseminated rapidly, and there are more Holocaust deniers today than ever before. What is more, a generation has changed, and to the new generation, if they have ever even heard of the Holocaust, it sounds like something that happened in some remote, distant, past world of Hollywood fiction. In popular culture, the Holocaust, the Nazis, and Hitler have been conflated into one symbolic archetype for evil and therefore neutered into something abstract and mostly meaningless, unrooted from history, used primarily as a standard by which one might express a level of disapproval for one's political or social opponents by comparing them to the Nazis. But social scientists still puzzle over the elephant in the room, the big question raised by the Holocaust. How is it possible that a first world educated, enlightened, philosophically sophisticated, morally developed, humanistic, highly civilized culture, beginning in Germany but extending throughout Western Europe, could commit such inhumanity and atrocity? Here in the West... In Western civilization, how? How is it possible? This is the question that haunts the modern man who believes himself to have evolved past the capacity for such inhumanity. What happened to that generation, the generation of World War II-era Europeans, which could account for a collective homicidal mania? In Hebrew, we call this phenomenon sinat chinam, baseless hatred. It's like a cancer that can spread through a society. It begins with individuals, but it takes on a collective energy which quickly whips up into a societal hurricane which does not abate until there has been a sufficient bloodletting. So, to put the question simply, how did a sophisticated, modern, Western culture succumb to the inhuman cruelties of baseless hatred? There is no end to the writing of books attempting to answer that question. Today, I offer you another answer. To begin with, of course, it's a spiritual problem. We know that. The war against the Jews did not begin on Kristallnacht. The war against the Jews has been going on since Pharaoh first ordered the midwives to kill the babies born to Israel in Egypt. It is a spiritual war between God and the false gods, and the false religious ideas of the world. Even when those idols disguise themselves as social philosophies like atheism, agnosticism, and humanism, hatred of the chosen people is woven into the spiritual warp and woof of the nations. It is the spirit of Amalek and the war of Gog and Magog played out through the ages. 
But that answer is not sufficient to explain what happened in the Holocaust or to explain what has happened since the Holocaust. Spiritual warfare in the form of anti-Semitism is surely the catalyst that set the blaze, but it wasn't just Jews perishing in the Nazi death camps. And the history of the world since then has proven that societal evil and genocidal tendencies can be directed against any target. It might be described as a mass hysteria that overtakes a society regardless of education, culture, or social development. One example we still live with to this day is the shadow of mutually assured self-destruction. How is it possible that two modern societies agreed to develop arsenals of nuclear weapons sufficient to assure the total extinction of our species? In what world does that make any sense at all? It's madness and folly that we are so accustomed to that it seems like wisdom. To answer the question of how an entire society devolved to such a point, I want to speak to you about another culture and another generation which should have known better but instead fell under the sway of madness and folly in the form of baseless hatred. I am speaking of the wicked and adulterous generation of our master. Looking back on the disaster, the sages contemplated the question, For what sin was the temple destroyed and Jerusalem destroyed? Why did God punish us with a second exile that endures to this day? The first time this happened, in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, the answer was really clear idolatry and apostasy. All the prophets warned about it. But that wasn't the case this time. The Jewish people absolutely rejected idolatry and apostasy. They were more religious than ever, more Torah observant than ever. So why did God smite them? The Talmud puts it this way. Why was the second temple destroyed at a time when people occupied themselves with the study of Torah, the observance of the commandments, and the practice of charity? because baseless hatred prevailed within them. In the days of our master Yeshua, the Jewish people suffered bitter political and theological divisions. But the biggest issue of all was the question of allegiance to Rome. Religious conservatives and Jewish nationalists, such as the Pharisees, argued against submission to the Roman overlords. They believed that cooperation with the Romans was the same as cooperation with idolatry and assimilation. They weren't wrong about that. The religious progressives, such as the Sadducees, and the secular aristocracy, the Herodians, held that Rome ruled by the will of God, and they endorsed the Romans as God's agents on earth. The political divide split the Jewish people and created a climate of acrimony and hostility which spawned domestic terrorism, assassinations, political intrigues, and hatred. Zealot terrorists targeted people they considered to be Roman collaborators, and they carried out their crimes in the name of God. Roman authorities responded with disproportionate retaliations, massacres, arrests, and crucifixions. Such cruelties inspired violent reprisals, and so it went. A vortex of violence and hatred seemed to be swallowing the nation. The historian Josephus, who was himself an eyewitness and participant in the Jewish revolt, tells us that the zealots, by and large, were the religious. These men, the zealots, agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions. That is to say, 
that the zealots believed in the authority of the Bible, in man's free will to choose good or evil, in the existence of the soul, in divine reward and punishment in the afterlife, and in the resurrection of the dead. But they idealized armed resistance and organized into secret militia groups. Josephus explains, These men have an inflexible devotion to liberty. They say that God is to be their only ruler and master. They do not fear any manner of death, nor are they unwilling to sacrifice the lives of their families and friends. And the zealots had a slogan they liked to use, God alone is king over Israel. Who's going to argue with that? Who is going to disagree with that? Sloganeering always gets people worked up. I'm always worried when I hear people chanting slogans. Slogan chanting replaces critical thought. Slogans are what people used before memes were invented. God alone is king over Israel, a message dangerously similar to the master's gospel message, the kingdom of God is at hand. Inevitably, people confused the two slogans, and the zealots of the Galilee began to rally behind Yeshua. They hoped in him as a revolutionary hero and warrior messiah. They hoped he would lead a war against Rome. So they were in for a disappointment. Think of how he begins his most famous teaching with beatitudes like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's not the message the revolutionaries wanted to hear. Josephus tells the story of how internecine strife within the Jewish people led to a complete breakdown of society that ultimately culminated in a terrible bloodletting during the Jewish revolt. Judea and Galilee were awash with political rivalries and Roman-style corruption that turned, as Yeshua said, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law until a man's enemies were the members of his own household. Forty years later, one biblical generation, the doom that Yeshua tried to avert finally struck. The Jewish people revolted against Rome. The cities of the Galilee burned as the Roman legions marched to put down the revolution. Ultimately, that revolt led to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the very outcome that Yeshua's gospel message of repentance endeavored to prevent. During the siege of Jerusalem, the sad thing is, more Jews died from war within the city than from the Roman assault. The political parties became small terrorist armies and turned on one another. So many bodies that they didn't even bury them. Even murder and bloodshed in the holy place. The corpses piled up in the temple courts. This is what Yeshua meant when he said, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Matthew twenty-four twenty-eight. This is what Yeshua was trying to avoid, and it's the context to statements like, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and save yourself from this evil generation. Our master could see that baseless hatred was the main sin that which was going to cause his generation to forfeit the redemption and go into exile. Therefore, he called upon his generation to repent, and by repent he meant love God and love one another. Love is at the center of his gospel message. His teachings all center around it. 
He said the whole Torah and prophets hang on two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. He explained the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, to mean do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He told his disciples that the golden rule is the Torah and the prophets. In other words, empathy forms the ethical core behind the message of the whole Bible. Plus, it's important to remember that Yeshua broadened the narrow definition of love your neighbor as yourself, that is, your fellow Jew as yourself, to love the stranger as yourself, that is, your fellow Samaritan, meaning your fellow human being as yourself. That was the message of the gospel. If we do this as a nation of Jewish people, if we turn from the sin of baseless hatred and commit to a path of loving God and loving our fellow human beings with true empathy, it will bring the messianic era and avoid catastrophe. But the generation refused the message and they forfeited the kingdom. They chose the path of indifference, apathy, and hatred rather than the path of love. If it had been us, we would have acted differently, right? How does a society reach the point of baseless hatred, as happened to the Master's generation and to the World War II era generation in Europe? Have you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a German Lutheran theologian who wasn't a very good Lutheran. When I was an 18-year-old freshman in college, I read his book, the cost of discipleship, and it made an enormous impact on me. He taught this radical idea that discipleship means we should take Yeshua literally and do what he says. Bonhoeffer lived during World War II, and he was shocked to see the whole church in Germany, nearly the whole church, swept up in patriotic nationalism and casting allegiance behind the Nazi party. So he did the only reasonable thing a devout pacifist could do. He tried to assassinate Hitler. The plot failed and he died in a concentration camp. But that's not the point. The point is that he was watching society melt down into baseless hatred all around him. He saw Christians subscribing to this program of baseless hatred, chanting Nazi slogans in the Sunday worship services, Churches bannered with swastikas, seminary students he had once studied with goose-stepping around with stiff-armed salutes saying, Heil Hitler, and he saw their fanatical, unwavering devotion to a single politician, which quickly led to otherwise good and educated Christian people throwing bricks through the windows of Jewish shops and homes and burning synagogues. And he just couldn't understand it. How is this possible? Then he realized how. He realized it's folly. It's foolishness. He said, foolishness has nothing to do with how intelligent a person is. Instead, it's a social folly. Here's what he says about this type of folly in Germany of the 1930s. I'm going to read a very long quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. Folly is more dangerous, a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil. It can be exposed. Against folly, we are defenseless. 
Neither protests nor the use of force accomplish anything here. Reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the foolish person even becomes critical, and when facts are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential and incidental. There are human beings who are of remarkable intelligence, yet foolish, and others who are intellectually quite dull, yet anything but foolish. Folly is not so much a congenital defect, but that under certain circumstances, people are made foolish, or that they allow this to happen to them. We note further that people who have isolated themselves from others or who live in solitude manifest this defect less frequently than individuals or groups of people inclined or condemned to sociability. And so it would seem that folly is perhaps less a psychological than a sociological problem. Every strong upsurge of power in the public sphere, be it of a political or of a religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with folly. It would even seem that this is virtually a sociological-psychological law. It seems that under the overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their inner independence and, more or less consciously, give up establishing an autonomous position toward the emerging circumstances. The foolish person is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with a person, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like that have taken possession of him. He is under a spell, blinded, misused, and abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless tool, the foolish person will also be capable of any evil, and at the same time, incapable of seeing that it is evil. This is where the danger of diabolical misuse lurks. For it is this that can once and for all destroy human beings. That was a long quotation. Here's the summary. Bonhoeffer explains how it was that good people, Christian people, in his generation became mindless and hate-filled Nazis and never even considered what they were doing was wrong. Here's how it happened. Human beings are psychologically, sociologically hardwired to surrender independent critical thought when in a socially connected movement under the influence of a powerful leader or ideology. So ask yourself this question. Given Bonhoeffer's description of folly, where people are unable to think independently just ignore and dismiss contradictory information, replacing critical thinking with slogans, catchwords, and the like. Does that better describe the progressive liberals of the political left or the conservative patriots of the political right? The correct answer is both. 
That describes our world today. Baseless hatred is tearing this nation apart, and it's tearing up the Christian church with it. This country is in an ideological and political divide that, in the last decade, and especially the last two years, has us now dedicated to full-time hatred, hating each other. Neither side is able to listen to anything the other side has to say whatsoever. Zero compromise is zero empathy, and the church is all in. That's how Bonhoeffer describes folly, and according to Bonhoeffer, Folly is proportionate to the amount of social connectivity people share during a time of rising power, that is, during the rise of a powerful leader or powerful movement. When human beings are socially connected and under the influence of a powerful leader, our brains go offline and we surrender independent thought to what George Orwell called groupthink, and as a result, you get madness and folly. So in our world today, which enjoys total social connectivity, this was a perfect storm waiting to happen. Social connectivity leads to a rising social movement. A rising social movement leads to folly. Folly leads to baseless hatred. Baseless hatred leads to destruction. Baseless hatred in our world today is further exasperated by something that Bonhoeffer did not foresee, and that is the market value and entertainment appeal of outrage and anger. We now have media outlets, talk show hosts, radio personalities, podcasters, YouTubers, who have discovered the way to get people to pay attention and pay you money is to sell them outrage. If you can get people outraged and worked up, you've got them hooked, and you can tell them anything, because the adrenaline rush of that anger and the outrage is addictive. Add to that mix the well-documented and not a conspiracy theory evidence that social media and internet propaganda companies working for foreign powers, namely Russia, are doing everything possible to exacerbate American outrage with other Americans, to fan the flames of civil war by feeding misinformation and inflammatory rhetoric to both sides of the debate. The Rand Corporation describes it as a fire hose of continuous and repetitive, preposterous disinformation and misinformation that makes no commitment to objective reality, all with the intent of inspiring hatred and societal collapse. That means they are producing propaganda to support both sides of every argument. They are producing propaganda to attack the Democrats. And the same company is creating propaganda to attack the Republicans. They produce media and propaganda to support the cause of Black Lives Matter. And the same group produces media and propaganda to support the cause of white nationalism. Because they know that Bonhoeffer's theory of social folly works. This is the path to Antichrist, when the love of most will grow cold. The Talmud says that Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jewish people went into exile because of the sin of baseless hatred. Yeshua said that his generation forfeited the Messianic era because they did not repent from this sin. What's the way out of folly and baseless hatred? It's the fear of the Lord. Measuring ourselves before God, not before others. Bonhoeffer said, Only an act of liberation, not instruction, can overcome foolishness. The word of the Bible, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, declares 
that the internal liberation of human beings to live the responsible life before God is the only genuine way to overcome foolishness. In other words, Bonhoeffer wants us to disconnect from the opinions of others and their agendas and pay personal attention only to the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's the belief that God is watching me, that he punishes my sin, and he rewards my righteousness, regardless of what others are doing or saying. That's the beginning of wisdom. It calls for individual accountability, which forces us to measure our own individual acts and words against God's standard, apart from the society consensus. This is what it means in our Torah portion when it says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. But what if we could use this newly discovered human capacity for social folly for good? If it's hardwired into us, who hardwired it? It must have a good purpose. This need that we all feel to be part of a greater whole, to be part of something that transcends our own limits, something that gives us meaning and purpose through our connection to a social group with a cause and a mission under the influence of a powerful leader. Why would God create us with that innate behavioral pattern? Well, if folly is on one side of this rule of social behavior, then wisdom is on the flip side. The recipe Bonhoeffer describes could also describe the kingdom movement, which is supposed to be a tightly knit social group of Yeshua's disciples in close social relationships under the persuasive influence of a single strong leader representing a rising power. And we are supposed to surrender individual will to him and to his agenda and to his slogans, such as repent, the kingdom is at hand, and love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the way. This is how we can be part of something greater than ourselves, that transcends our own limits, that gives us meaning and purpose through our connection to a social group that is each other, with a cause and a mission under the influence of a powerful leader. The difference is that surrender of independence to this leader will result not in folly, but wisdom. And that's why we need each other and why we need to gather together in community and cling to each other. And each of us, to our righteous Messiah, may he come quickly, soon, and in our lifetimes. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul